What is up, everybody? This is Pastor Philip Jackson coming to you from Evergreen Church in South Tulsa. This is The Reach Podcast. If you're joining us on the Reach podcast, um, my apologies because um, of the coronavirus. There's nothing that I can do about it. I wish that it was different, but we're here. So I'm going to do my very best to bring the word to you. Um, we're going to try to figure out a way to get video uh, of the message so that it's a little bit easier for you guys to follow along. Um, but I want to uh, I want to encourage you as this week unfolds, as the next couple weeks unfold. Understand that God has put you here on purpose, that this is not a mistake. The coronavirus is a result of sin. It's a result of a sinful world that one of the byproducts of sin is death, right? And so one of the things that we talk about quite a bit here at REACH is that for us, we understand that looking at the world correctly is a way for us to have context. When everybody else is freaking out, we can look at God's Word and we know, based on the truth, what we can hold on to and what we can let go of. So I want to encourage you, if you're listening, if you are struggling with the coronavirus, with the effects of the coronavirus and what it's doing to our culture, I want to encourage you that God has placed you in this moment, at this point in time, to shine His light to the world. And when the rest of the world runs around without hope, God's people are the ones who step up and they continue to do what God has called them to do. And they are uh, not afraid of what's going on. We're in a series of lessons looking at who God is. Okay, So we started off talking about the Son. We started off talking about who Jesus was and how He played a role in our transformation. We're in a three-part series. Tonight is the second part of the, three, of the three-part series. Last week we looked at the Son, we looked at Jesus. Tonight we're going to look at the Father and how He plays a role in our transformation. So for Reach, we are in the, the, for Reach, the, we are in the year of transformation. We are in the process of looking at how we can change our lives based on our obedience to Christ. Okay, we started, looking, started by looking at Romans chapter 12, and what that means for us in uh, being living sacrifices, and how in the process of being living sacrifice, number one, God changes our mind, number two, we're not conformed to the world, and number three, we begin to know God's will. So tonight we're going to look at uh, the second part of the passage that we looked at last week. Last week we looked at Romans chapter 5, the first five verses. Tonight we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And we're going to see how the Father played a role in our redemption. Okay, so before we get started, though, the, the first thing that I want you to understand is we need to talk about theology. Okay, theology is, is a, it's a, it's a word used in church culture. It's, it's, a, world, it's a word used in seminary culture. Um, but here's basically what it means. Your theology is the most basic thing about you. Your theology is how you see God. Okay, theology, me, it, theology means the study of God. And so as you see God, the way that you see God 
is your theology, okay? So this, this manifests itself in a lot of different ways in our lives, okay? Your theology is the most basic thing about you. So that means that the way that you see God, the way that you see God's nature, the way that you understand who He is, all of these determine how you see the rest of creation, how you see yourself, how you see others, how you see creation uh, in its non-human form, how you see history, how you see culture, how you see all different kinds of things, philosophy. All of these things, are they, they derive themselves, they come from your theology, how you understand who God is. And so it's important to remember that theology is something that all of us have. There is not one person on the face of this earth that doesn't have a theology. Because theology is basic truth. It's basic understanding. And whether you call it theology or not, it doesn't change that it's true. Okay? And so for us, as followers of Jesus, as people who are passionate about the things of God, we need to understand that our theology matters, okay? How we see the Son matters. How we see the Father, it matters. How we see the Holy Spirit, it matters, okay? So we are in the process over the next several weeks of looking at who is God, who is the Father, who is the Son, who is the Holy Spirit, and how do they play a role in our lives? How do they manifest themselves in our theology, okay? So last week, we started out by looking at the first five verses of Romans chapter 5. We looked at how Jesus, the Son, how He has declared peace with God because of His sacrifice. And because He has declared peace with God, we have been made right with Him. Now, if you remember, a few weeks ago we talked about how because of our pride, because of our rejection of God as the Lord of creation, that means that we are living in sin, okay? So we have a common misconception in our generation that sin has something to do with the things that we do. But the truth is that sin is not about what we do. Sin is about control. Sin is about lordship. That's the whole point of this, this whole exercise. The whole point of our existence is lordship, okay? When Adam and Eve took a bite of the fruit in the Garden of Eden that brought sin into the world, it wasn't about not doing something that God said not to do. It was about them deciding who was going to be in control. And so what happens is because we have lost our innocence, because we have lost our understanding, our purity, what happens is, is that the consequences of that rejection is we are separated from God. And if, the Bible, if what the Bible says is true, everything good comes from God. There is nothing good that does not come from God. And so for us, as we separate ourselves from God because we, we accept our own lordship, we reject Him as Lord, as we separate ourselves from Him, that means that we do not have access to the good in life. We don't have access to, to the good in creation. So as a result, the wages of sin, the payment of sin, the, the payment of that rejection is death. But Jesus comes along and he says, no, I have declared you perfect. I have paid the price. I have paid for this rejection to the point of death on the cross. So Jesus has made the world right. He has made creation right again. But we have to still make a choice about who we are going to allow to be the Lord of our lives. That's why when we confess Jesus, we confess Him as our Savior and our Lord. 
A lot of people, they get bound up and they want Jesus as the Savior, but they don't want Jesus as the Lord. And so what happens is they say a prayer, they live their whole lives, they sit in church, they sing some songs, they sit, listen to an intellectually stimulating message, and then they move on down the road and they wonder, why is my life not different? Because they haven't actually surrendered their life to Jesus, they have just said a prayer. You can't have the Savior part without the Lord part. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. But because of Jesus, because of us placing our hope in Him, our trust in Him, letting Him be the Lord and call the shots in our lives, we have hope. In the first five verses of Romans chapter 5, it talks about how that hope comes through a process. How we, we begin to see God move in our lives through our affliction, which produces endurance, which then produces proven character, which then produces hope. The kind of hope that doesn't disappoint. The kind of hope that is, that is true. And as a down payment to, to, for, for us to know that God is actually working, He's given us a gift, and that gift is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the teacher that comes and He teaches us all things. and He, he is that still, small voice that whispers in our ear. The process of our struggles, they produce hope. As we learn from the Holy Spirit, we get confidence. We talked about last week the analogy of sitting in a chair and how we grow in our confidence based on experience. Well, tonight we're going to look at the next few verses in Romans chapter 5 and how the Father transforms us. What is His part in this whole transformation endeavor? Okay? So if you have your Bibles, turn over to Romans chapter 5. I hope you have a pen handy. I hope you have your journal ready. Or if you get your, your laptop up, your keyboard open, open up a Word document or Google Doc so you can study this later. But I want you to be writing some of these things down. The first thing I want you to write down is that your theology is the most basic thing about you. Your theology is the most basic thing about you. Because how you see God is how you see the world. The first thing that I want you to see outside of theology, okay? The first thing I want you to see from this passage is that when we were in sin, no one wanted us. I'm going to read the whole passage, and we're going to go back, and we're going to take it piece by piece, okay? So starting in verse 6 of chapter 5 of Romans, it says this. It says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves His own will in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by His blood, will we be saved through Him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation." Okay, so the first thing in verse chapter 6 is, is, is he says that when we were in sin, nobody wanted us. Look at this. He says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. What does it mean to be helpless? What does it mean to not be able to change things, to not be free, to not be able to, to, to make things right, to make your own decisions? For us, being helpless means living in control. For us, being helpless means that we are like the, uh, if you guys have seen the movie Mary Poppins, okay, the old, the old movie Mary Poppins. You've got the admiral who lives across the street in the house, right? And he's, he's sitting up there and he has his first mate. They've got a cannon, they've got a mast, they've got a helm, the whole nine yards. And he stands up there at the helm 
He tells his first mate to fire the cannon, you know, when the time is right. And he pretends. He's a great pretender. He thinks he's an admiral. He thinks that he is the one who is calling the shots. But the truth is that he's sitting on top of a house with a helm that's not, a, not attached to a ship. But he instead is bolted to the roof. In a lot of ways, we're that way. We're helpless. We have no control. We are standing still. There is nothing good in our lives because we haven't actually submitted ourselves to the Lordship of God. But what's incredible about this is that nobody wanted us except for Him. Look at this, for instance. It says in the first part of, first part of verse 6, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Consider this for a second. The right time. Now, I want you to understand something. That God is not ever distant. He is not ever not paying attention. God is not up there taking a nap, and then He wakes up and all of a sudden He realizes, Oh my goodness, the coronavirus is taking over the universe. We've got to stop this. Quick, Gabriel, get your trumpet. God is not distant. He is not seeing things from afar. He is not being passive with creation. It says that at the right time, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. He died for the ones that, that no one wanted. That means that God has a plan. That means that God has always had a plan. That means that you have been created for this moment right here. So coronavirus is, is sweeping over the world right now. There are older folks who are terrified. There are young folks who are terrified. I went to Walmart yesterday and there, were, there was no food. Like I, it, was, it was the most bizarre thing that I've ever experienced in my life. Some of you may remember the, um, the, the big ice storm that happened in 2006, 2007. It was the most bizarre thing. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. There was no eggs. There was no milk. There was no cheese. There was no deli meat. No toilet paper. No hand sanitizer. No soap. No rice. No flour. Even most of the orange juice was gone. I went to two different Walmarts, a Supercenter and a neighborhood Walmart, and I didn't find anything. People are freaking out. But God has chosen to place you at a specific time in history to play a specific role in the life of His church. Hear me something, Christian. God has placed you on purpose in this moment. You have been born to live these days it says here that, that at the right time Christ died. That means that God has intentionally written the world and the timeline of history on purpose. And He has placed you here at this moment. On March 17th, 2020, God has put you here to speak truth and light into His world. At the specific time, at the right time, God, Christ, died for the ungodly. God's not absent or distracted. His plan has always been intentional and specific. That means that you, being here, is intentional and specific. The other thing here is that Christ died for the ungodly. Think about this. Jesus dying was premeditated. He thought about this from the creation of the world. He thought about this when he would knit you together in your mother's womb. God knew that he made, he knew that when he made you, that you would be broken and you would reject him. He knew that you would have this, this argument with yourself every single day. I'm going to be the Lord. No, you're going to be the Lord. I'm going to be the Lord. No, you're going to be the Lord. And he knew, he knew this whenever he created you. And yet, 
knowing how difficult life would be, knowing how all of this would affect us, he still sent Jesus on purpose to die intentionally. The Father's love is so great that when we were helpless in our sin, Christ died for us. But God was not absent, letting creation play out without Him. He planned, He waited, and He implemented His perfect will to restore His creation. We were never out of His sight or intention. This is why it's significant that He would send Christ to die for us. When we were unwanted by anyone, He wanted us. But check this out. The second thing that I want you to see in this passage is in verses 7 through 9. It is that the Father proves His love for us by sending Jesus. Okay, the Father proves His love for us by sending Jesus. Check this out in verses 7 through 9. Verse 7 says this, it says, For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might, get, might dare to die. But God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then? Since we have been now, now been declared righteous by His blood, will we be saved through Him from wrath? Maybe, their li- maybe someone would give their life up for a good person. Would you do that? If you knew someone, you know, you knew Mother Teresa was here. Mother Teresa was here and she was about, it was about to cost her her life. And someone stands up and they say, if, you, if, if we can find one person to take her place, we'll let her live. The Apostle Paul is saying, listen, someone might do that, but not for, a, for, not for a dirty, rotten sinner. That's not how this works. Nobody's going to do that for you. But God, in verse 8, but God proves His own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God died for you before you even decided to follow Him. He didn't say, Jesus did not say, hey, listen, I'll die for you and I'll pay for your sin if you'll choose to follow me. That's not how this works. Instead, what happened was that he died first. Because he loves you regardless of whether or not you accept him. Consider that. God loves you regardless of whether or not you accept him. The Bible says that it's not His will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It says that God is loving, and He is just, and He is merciful. It says that He doesn't willingly afflict the hearts and the sons of men. God's default is mercy. His default is love. It has nothing to do with you choosing to follow Him. He loves you regardless. That's why it pains Him so much to allow you to live in the consequences of your sin because he sees that it destroys you. He sees that it's poisoning your life. God isn't, it's not about the things that you do. It's about control. It's about who you want to be. Do you want to live a life that is full of life or do you want to live a life full of death? Apart from God, there is no life. Apart from God, there is no love, there is no joy, there is no peace, there is no patience, there is no kindness, there is no gentleness, there is no self-control. Apart from Him is nothing good. In fact, we call it life, 
to be the lords of our own destiny. But the truth is we should just call it death. Because there is no life apart from the Lord. But the other thing is that the, the sacrifice of Jesus, that He saved us from the wrath of God. Now look at what it says here in verse 9. Okay, how much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by His blood, will we be saved through Him from wrath? I want to explain something to you. So there's a difference between wrath and judgment, or judgment and discipline. Okay? Discipline is something, it's correction that happens for those who belong to God. Okay? So if you belong to your parents and, they, and you're doing something that is out of line, that they know is going to be destructive to you, what they do is they administer discipline. Okay? Discipline is something that is corrective in nature. I'm going to, there's going to be a consequence to get you to not do that anymore because it's destructive. Don't touch that hot stove. Don't do it. You're going to hurt yourself. Do not do it. Don't go close to the stove. What happens? Kapow! My dad used to do that to me. My mom, especially. My mom was the spanker in our family. There's a difference between judgment and discipline. See, judgment is correction for those who reject God. So, we have a, we have a, a mindset for some reason, I don't understand this, that says that that God is just waiting, waiting for us to mess up, and he's, and he's just sitting there with a lightning bolt ready to throw it down and strike us. But that's not His nature. That's not His nature. I want you to consider something. Sin. Sin is like cancer. Cancer looks like you. It's a, it's a mutation of your own flesh. Um, but the thing about cancer is it spreads. And even though it's part of your body, your body doesn't know that it's, that it's actually taking resources. And so over time, the cancer will grow and it'll starve your body of, of the ability to, to live. In the same way, sin is like that. Sin doesn't look like anything major. It looks like just a part of everyday, everyday human life. And so we begin to categorize sin in different stages or different severities. And so what ends up happening is that Certain sins are okay with others. Imagine if you had cancer. And the doctor comes to you and he says, listen, it could be lung cancer, stomach cancer, colon cancer, whatever. The doctor comes to you and he says, you know what? You've got lung cancer at stage four, but don't worry. It's all right. It's not stomach cancer. Or he says, you know what? You've got brain cancer. You know, it's not as bad as it could be. It's, it's stage four, but, you know, it's not that big of a deal. If a doctor said that to you, you'd be like, this is, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. What does a doctor have to do? To save the rest of your cells, to save the, to save the rest of, of your bodies, he's got to go in and he's got to take that, remove that cancer. You've got to treat the area that's been affected. See, sin has effects not just on us, but it has, it has effects on other people as well because we naturally produce a fruit in our life, okay? The, the, we produce a culture. That culture is displayed in the Bible. It's described in the Bible as fruit. And so, for us, our sin has internal and external consequences. So what happens is, for those that have accepted the, the lordship of God, He administers discipline and correction, Okay? Hebrews says that whom the Lord loves, He corrects. It says, don't despise the correction of the Lord. 
But to those who reject Him, who refuse to relinquish control, it says that He will meet them with wrath, judgment. Based on what we know about God, does He enjoy this process? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But you know what? A rebellious spirit is a contagious spirit. And so what happens is that person who lives defiantly against God will have to give an account, not only for the things that they did to affect themselves, but also for what they did to affect other people. And so for that, God takes offense. He takes radical offense at that. And so judgment is administered to those who have rejected God. And He is determined to remove sin from His creation because of what it does. Because He hates it. He hates it because it destroys everything that He loves. It destroys everything in His creation. It has corrupted His most precious thing, His community of people that He made to have relationship with. That is why God hates sin, because it corrupts us. Why the Father hates it, because it corrupts us. The Father sees everything differently than we do. We can draw encouragement from the truth that He he has set a specific moment in history to make things right. And when the time came, He eagerly followed through. If He says that that His default is grace... And if these are the lengths that He would go to make us have peace with Him, how much more do we see and know that He will save us from the consequences of our sin? This is so much bigger than just about escaping hell. It's about restoring a relationship that He has been eagerly waiting for. God doesn't want to sit there. He does not want to administer judgment. He wants to administer grace. If that's the case... Why do we think that he is so bent out of shape and wants to just give us another lick? His default is grace. His default is mercy. And we see that. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that even in that, since we've been declared righteous by his blood, we've been saved from wrath. We've been saved from this destruction. We've been saved from this this judgment. Because of what Jesus did, Because of the Father sending Him to do it, we have escaped His wrath. This is monumental. The third thing that I want you to see in this passage is in the last couple of verses, in verses 10 and 11. Look at this. This is the Father's purpose. I'm sorry, the Father's purpose is about restoring life, not just preventing hell. Okay, write this down. This is point number three. The Father's purpose is about restoring life, not just preventing hell. Look at what it says in verses 10 and 11. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received this reconciliation. Our reconciliation with God is only about one thing. It's It's a door 
to true life. See, we think, we think that salvation is just about going to heaven most of the time. We think, okay, well, salvation is just about what happens to me after I die. But that's not true. That's just half the picture. See, salvation actually has two parts. The first part is our citizenship in heaven, where we avoid hell, where we avoid the judgment. Okay? The second part, the meat, is the restoration of the relationship with God and life. Consider this. All things that are good come from, come from the Father. James chapter 1 says that. All things that are good come from the Father. And that there is nothing evil that comes from the Father. That means that all of this that's been done, Him sending Jesus, Him orchestrating time, Him orchestrating Jesus' second coming, all of these things are so that you could have a relationship with Him. This is huge. This is bigger than big. That the Father is the one who orchestrated all of this. That He has laid all of these things out. That He's the one that sent Jesus. He's the one that laid out the plan. And if Jesus is the one that saves us, the Father is the one who wrote the plan that saved us. Because one of the things that we don't realize is that before Jesus created the world, okay, John chapter 1 says that Jesus is the one who created the world. And, that the, and then Genesis chapter 1 says that the Spirit was there hovering over the water as creation was being made. And the Father was the one who, who, who orchestrated all of this. So as this has all been playing out, when it began in the beginning, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they said, we want to make man in our image. They wanted to share divine community with these human beings that they made. And they did. It says that God walked with man. Jesus walked with, with Adam in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. It says that, that God is the one who has injected himself into history and he has always been participating with us. So when sin entered the world, he knew that he was creating an opportunity for us to, to choose Him. Why would God do that? Why would God, why would the Father allow us that choice? Because He loves you so much that He does not want someone to love Him just out of obligation. You see, we don't accept forgiveness only to keep us from judgment. That's only part of this picture. We accept forgiveness, we accept peace with God because we want to be in community with God. That is who you were created to be, to be someone who is in community with God. That's why this is so significant. The other thing about this is that the life that comes from restoration leads to a rejoiceful spirit. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, we have now received this reconciliation. We rejoice. The goodness of the Father is not just limited to the escape from hell. At this core, at His core, He is a life bringer. 
His life brings the absolute fullness of life. That's, that's what that word means at the end of verse 10, to, that we will be saved by His life. It means that He would be a life bringer. In essence, He becomes our source of complete satisfaction and fulfillment of purpose. It is in all of these things that we are not just reconciled with God to avoid punishment, but His reconciliation fills us with a rejoiceful spirit as we grow to appreciate what He has done for us through Jesus. This process that we're talking about this year, about being a living sacrifice, about staying on the altar on purpose, about choosing to let Him be the Lord and me not be the Lord, laying myself down on a daily basis, and when I crawl off the altar, I get right back on again. And the, the process of me not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of my mind so that I can know God's will it brings life, it brings satisfaction, it brings freedom. We are living in a time right now where people are so afraid. People are terrified, and so what they're doing is they're clinging to anything that they can to find security. They're, they're clinging to anything that they can to find some sort of hope, whether that's a full freezer, gas in the tank of their car, or making sure that they have stockpiled enough Redbox videos to, to, to last them for three weeks. People are so terrified. But this process of learning to trust in God, the, the process of learning to be a living sacrifice, it's like, it's, like a, it's like a locomotive, a train that gains steam. At first, yes, it's really difficult, and it takes a lot of energy to stay on that altar, but slowly but surely you gain momentum, and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm really not in control. I, there's freedom that comes with this. And next thing you know, you start to realize, oh my goodness, this is, oh, this is awesome. This is awesome. You mean when Jesus says in Matthew 6 that, that I shouldn't worry about my life, what I should eat or what I should drink or what I should wear? That after these types of things, the ungodly pagan people seek, the ones that don't believe in God, who have a bad theology? When Jesus says to seek me first in the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added to you, that's what he's talking, he means that? Wait a minute. When he says don't worry about tomorrow because today has enough worry of its own, he meant that? Not just in a, in a philosophical way like, hey, God's going to take care of me, but in a real nuts and bolts, truthful way, he meant that. If you take anything away from this, this message at all tonight, I want, you to, I want you to listen to this thing here. That God wants you, and He wants to know you. He wants you to know Him, not just the idea of Him. Your salvation experience when you trusted in Jesus is not the end of your walk with God. It is the beginning I want to encourage you that each person of the Trinity is working to restore your life, to restore you to life, to be alive. Jesus came, and because of Him we have peace with the Father. This rejection, the consequences of rejection, the consequences of sin, the death, and all the things that come with it, all of those have been set aside. The judgment has been set aside. But it wasn't because the, the, the father said, all right, well, go see what you can do. All right, Jesus, go, go see if you can save those people. He did it on purpose. 
From the beginning, there's been a plan. The Father has never been hiding, and He isn't mad at you. God is not mad at you. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are someone who has pledged your life to Christ, you're struggling. You're having a hard time, and for some reason you think that all this stuff, and all this stuff, that that God is just mad at you, and He just doesn't like you anymore. This passage says otherwise. It says that while you were still a sinner, before you even knew who God was, when you were oblivious, when nobody wanted you, nobody cared about you, you were just a dirty piece of garbage. He loved you. That means that God, the Father, the same God of the Old Testament, the same God of the New Testament, has always loved you. How much? To the extent that He sent Jesus to pay the price for your pride and arrogance and need for control. If He loved you like this before you had any experience with Him, how much more does He love you now? Christian, if you're struggling, I want you to stop looking for reasons to ignore God. Okay, you might be listening to this right now, and you might be thinking, you know what, that's great, but, you know, I realize God's love and all that business, but I really don't care about that stuff because there's this one thing that that he's really mad about, and I really can't make things right with God because he's just mad at me. Listen, listen, God is not mad. He's not mad at you. He's not angry. He wants you to come to Him. If you are a follower of Christ, if you're a Jesus chaser, I want you to make it right with God right now. He is calling you. He is begging you to make things right with Him. Submit to God. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Don't be afraid. Stop trying to ignore him and and pretend this isn't there. It could be you're listening to this and you don't know anything about what I'm talking about. Or maybe you grew up in the church and you're one of those people that you said a prayer when you were little, but you know what? You didn't actually give him the lordship of your life. You said a prayer because you didn't want to go to hell. But as far as the lordship part, the control part, no, you still pretty much got that. The sad part is, you're like the guy sitting on the roof with, at, at, a, at a fake wooden helm of a ship pretending to be out on the open ocean. Meanwhile, you are sitting in the same place that you always have been. I want you to give up. I want you to give up right now. I want you to throw your hands up and I want you to say, God, I am not going to do this anymore because clearly I'm not going anywhere. God has made you to do so much more, to experience so much more. And the reason why you're frustrated, the reason why you haven't seen success, the reason why you actually don't have life in your life, you have more of a death than a life, the reason why all this stuff is happening is because you won't give up control. You are so hell-bent on being right that you will not let God be God. And as a result, 
You sit there. You sit there in your South Tulsa chair, living what you think is a holy life. Meanwhile, you're dying inside. There is so much more. There is so much more. There is so much more for you. The only way that you can have life is with Jesus. The only way that you can make things right is with Jesus. You can't do this on your own. You can't do it. Understand this truth. That no matter what you think you know about God, the absolute truth is this. Is that God the Father loves you and He loved you so much that He sent His Son Jesus to die for you and it was on purpose. And there is nothing in your life that can change the fact that He loves you. What's up, everybody? This is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday evening at 6.30 at Evergreen Church, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. For more information, check out our website, reachtulsa.org. You can connect with us on social media and on Instagram by searching for reach.tulsa. Also, be sure to subscribe to our content for the latest sermons and updates. You can also find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. With revival sound, oh.